Play ball. Hi, and welcome to today's edition of the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon, Senior Research Analyst. We hope that you're safe and healthy, and thank you for listening. Hope this can serve as a respite for you as we deal with all the different issues related to coronavirus. We are going to shift gears today and do something way different than we've previously done here. I wanted to find a guest from another realm of life who uses analytics to help inform decision-making in their job. And I wanted it to be in a performance-related field akin to sports. Thanks to the help of a Twitter friend, I found someone, and we can draw parallels in comparing our lines of work. One thing I've done a lot of during the pandemic is watch a lot of stand-up comedy. You can find plenty of it on the various movie platforms or social media channels. And I've been wondering, how do comedians know when jokes do well versus when they don't? On today's show, we're joined by Kasha Patel. By day, she's a science writer and now a social media manager for NASA. By night, she's a comedian in the Washington, D.C. area with a focus on science, but also touches on traditional comic topics like family and the cultural experience of growing up Indian in West Virginia. She's open for notable comedians such as Jen Kirkman, Natasha Leggero, and Verdas, and she has a TED Talk titled Sneaking Science into Stand-Up. She also has her own podcast, Science Comedy Paradox, and she's on the thrillist list of the best undiscovered comedians in the United States. Most notable to us, she has a spreadsheet on which she tracks the effectiveness of jokes similar to how we track the effectiveness of defensive performance. I write jokes about science, and I've been doing comedy for a while, and I realize that by combining both of these things, stand-up comedy actually has a lot of qualities that can make science more approachable for people who think it's boring or don't care. How do I know this? Well, I actually analyzed over 500 of my jokes. Kasha, welcome. First of all, is there anything in your story that I didn't uh, cover that you'd like to share with people? Oh, man, you covered a lot of things. I think my <laughs> favorite part is most notable to you guys is I have a spreadsheet. If only that's the way that I could get people to book me. It's like, she has a spreadsheet of her jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose one thing I left out is how long have you been doing stand-up and just kind of give us an overview of how you got into it. Yeah, um, so I've been doing stand-up for about seven years now. It's always hard to gauge of, anytime you ask a comedian that, you always get a different number, because is it the time you first stepped on stage, or is it the time you decided to take it seriously? Um, so I started in Boston when I was getting my master's in science journalism, um, which, as you said, I work as a science writer now, which is a lot of fun, because I'm always writing um, about scientific publications, looking at uh, data, a lot of satellite data, and coming up with a story uh, that the data uh, says. But when I was in Boston, I started doing stand-up comedy there. And because I was in the science world, I tried doing science jokes, but it didn't quite work because maybe I just, I mean, yes, I definitely wasn't good. <laughs> when you start out, you're always terrible at everything, um, which was actually part of the reason, and I know we'll get into this, of why I decided to start the spreadsheet. But anyways, I started doing stand-up there, started doing science jokes, they weren't working. Then I had to move to Washington, D.C. for my job. And that's when people asked me, hey, do you do science jokes? And I said, you would come to a show that had science jokes? And they're like, yeah. So I started doing science-themed comedy nights, which now I cleverly call science comedy nights. Um, <laughs> and those are in D.C. And um, those have been a lot of fun. It, I when I started doing them about seven years ago, I think I was like one of the only regularly occurring science comedy shows. Now there are a few more, but I've definitely learned a lot throughout those years. How did you get the idea to log the jokes? And uh, do you know anyone else that's doing this? 
That is a good question of if I know anybody else. Um, I'll, I'll back up. So all comedians intuitively know what jokes are going to, well, what jokes are doing one, which ones aren't. When you go up on stage, um, you're kind of listening to the laughs and you're like, oh, that got a laugh. That one got a bigger laugh. Um, what I did was I just kind of put numbers to it. So I record all of my sets and I listen to how long it took me to say the premise and then how long it took or how many seconds of laughter came afterwards. So in a way, I kind of got this efficiency ratio. And then so in the TEDx talk, I actually showed you that. But there was more analysis that went into it where I also did out of all the performances that I listened to, which were... Um, uh, I think like maybe 50 performances and over 500 jokes. I tried to see what percent of that set had laughter in it. And then which set actually had uh, the most laughter, how much of that was crowd work. So I tried to account for a lot of different variables. And I think, like I said, most people, most comedians have an intuitive sense of, oh yeah, this joke's a killer. This is what I'm going to end on. But to have that actual number to it, was helpful for me. It was helpful for one fact, because if I went in front of the audience and they didn't laugh at that joke, I was like, well, the data shows over like, you know, whatever hundred times I've done this joke in the past, it does really well. So this is on you guys, not me. <laughs> so it's helpful in that. Have you expanded the spreadsheet out? We were talking off air just a second ago about you can, there are a lot of different ways that you could go with this. I, I wrote a few things down that you could do like broad sp subject, specific subject, like broad subject would be like, I guess, um, pet humor. And then specific could be like something about your cat, dog, whatever animal in particular. Uh, you could rate your jokes, which I, I think you, you mentioned off air that you do. Uh, how have you expanded uh, upon what you've done? Yeah. So rating my jokes is interesting because that's actually how I started out doing this Excel sheet. When I first started, there's this idea that, okay, when do you keep a joke and when do you give up on it? So depending on which experienced comedian you talk to, sometimes they say, okay, you have to do a joke 10 times and then gauge how well it does. If it hits nine out of 10 times, you keep it. Um, so I was, keeping, I was keeping an Excel sheet where I just like ranked it from three to five stars. I mean, if it was below three, then I'm just going to scrap it. Uh, three to five stars where five met, it always gets a laugh. Four met, uh, depending on the audience, it might get a laugh. And three met, oh, I'm really going to have to work hard to get the audience to like that joke. But it wasn't specific enough. Um, it wasn't very good about showing the consistency. So that's kind of why I moved away from the rating system. Um, now, as I've done more of this kind of numerical analysis, there are a ton of things that I have done since that and that I'm currently working on. One of them was, do dirtier jokes work better? And I ranked all, or I rated all of my jokes like you would a movie from G to NC-17. And I'm not really a dirty comic anyways, because because I do science jokes, I get asked to do a lot of STEM festivals and have older people in the audience and <laughs> see young people in the audience, and they don't really like <laughs> dirty jokes. And also for TV, it's not really welcome, so I try to stay more on the cleaner side. My dirtiest jokes, uh, they'll have words in them that might signify or signal that they're dirty, but 
they're very scientific in how I say them. Yeah, I was, I was going to say they're not really. Like, they're just, they're, they're, they're just a launching point for you to get to, to the next part. I studied chemistry in school. I liked it. Um, but I was doing labs, and I realized that the only real difference between being a scientist and a frat boy is just really good documentation. <laughs> All right, so we're going to play a game here, guys. I'm going to give you a scenario. You're going to tell me what's this done by a scientist or a frat bro. You ready? Having sex with a dolphin. Scientists? Frat boys. Frat boys. All right. The answer is actually both. <laughs> but only the scientist documented it. <laughs> All right. Um, giving cocaine to a group of rats and then playing Miles Davis. Rats. Scientists? Rats. Frat boys? Frat boys. The answer is scientists and a group of rich white frat boys. <laughs> uh, last one we'll do is putting blue food dye in people's beer and watching how they react. Scientists, frat boys. The answer is actually um, me last night at a bar. So <laughs> you guys are all wrong. <laughs> So in that analysis, I actually found out that my cleaner jokes actually performed better than my dirtier jokes. So that was one interesting thing. For future analysis, what I'm currently working on is, does the audience size matter when it comes to how long people will laugh? Um, on my podcast, which you mentioned, Science Comedy Paradox, I recently did an episode about virtual comedy shows because that's what we're doing during the quarantine. And I asked a humor researcher, how much does laughter impact the audience response? And people found that when, uh, the researchers found that when people are laughing and other people can hear that laughter, you get more laughter. So it would be interesting for me to use my data um, to see, okay, for audiences less than 20, between 20 and 50, 50 to 100 and above that, was there a difference with the amount of laughter? I suspect that there will be from less than 20 to, let's say, above 50. Um, but I want to see if there's a significant difference between that. Have you done oh, anything with age, with the age of the audience, or the demographic kind of composition, men, women, younger, older, like that kind of thing? So that one gets a little more difficult because I have recordings. So maybe in the future when I take my recordings, I'll write those down. Um, but... I kind of know um, in DC what my audiences are like. One thing I have done with demographics is I can do of science shows, like science audiences versus non-science audiences. So you talked about categorizing my jokes. And actually, the initial thing that I was trying to figure out in this TEDx talk was, do my science jokes work better than my non-science themed jokes? And the answer was actually yes. Even though my science jokes at that time comprised a smaller percentage of my overall jokes, they actually performed better. And then the rest of the talk explores why I think that is true. So you can do a lot of different things in terms of macro versions of the study, just looking beyond my data. And I mean, I'm trying to actually create some kind of <laughs> if I could automate this, so that way, uh, what I literally had to do to get this data was I had to listen to every single one of my recordings, and I had to do it by pencil and write out the seconds of the premise and write out the seconds of the laughter, and I had to time it, which is very time-consuming. It's longer. If I have a five-minute clip, it's going to take me like 10 minutes to do that. 
So what I've been trying to work on was transcribing it, trying to figure out if there's a way that I could calculate the laughs that way, or just creating some kind of AI software that can listen to it for me and then kind of parse out uh, how much of it's laughter and how much of it isn't. There's a lot of issues with that because the sound quality in each recording is very different because each venue is very different. Um, but that would be a dream. <laughs> so, you, so you mentioned one thing I, I, that's a great parallel with what we deal with, automation. Uh, we, would, we would love to be able to automate a lot of our processes. It's interesting to hear that it's, <laughs> it's the same kind of thing in the stand-up community. Also on a macro scale, I was thinking about this too because I've been watching Mike Birbiglia has been doing these uh, uh, talks to raise money for wait staffs on Instagram with other comedians where they basically swap jokes. Um, and he was talking about how certain jokes are his jo like jokes that he would tell and then he realizes when he writes something that that's not a joke that he would tell, but it's a joke that some other uh, comedian would tell. Um, I imagine if you were doing a macro study that that certainly gender of joke teller would, would play a role, race of joke teller would be a role. Those are more probably broad social science kind of things, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I definitely can joke about being Indian <laughs> because I'm Indian. <laughs> Right. Um, because of that, I mean, you can kind of tell what your demographic is. I do science jokes, so people who like science are my demographic. Um, if I had to categorize my jokes into three different areas, I would say science, uh, being Indian, and then kind of the young single girl dating, kind of like in her mid-20s or whatever. Um, so, But at that same time, each one of my jokes uh, categories do appeal to different groups. So I am from West Virginia. So I've noticed a lot of my West Virginia jokes really appeal to an older white guy demographic. <laughs> sure. um, because I mean, I think they have been to West Virginia, and it's something from their time and younger people don't really care much about West Virginia anymore. So uh, optimally, like end result of everything that you've collected so far, um, what are like concrete things you, you kind of mentioned them before, but what are concrete things that you found? Yeah, so like I said, my science jokes um, do the best. One thing that would be interesting, so I was testing joke efficiency. And this is very important because you don't want to use extraneous words when you don't have to. So when I write jokes going forward, I really do think about, is this premise the shortest that I could say it? because I want to get that ratio down to, I mean, one-to-one -one would be good. You know, the same amount of time that it takes me to say the joke is how much laughter it produces. In certain cases, the laughter is actually longer than the premise. And that's that happens when it's a tag. So a tag is after you finish the joke, you give your punchline, you have another like second punchline that goes with it that builds off of that. So in that case, it's literally just me saying, uh, and there's video. That would be the tag for that. And that just erupts. And that's usually where I get the most amount of my laughter is from tags. There's also something to be said about crowd work. I found out I really enjoy doing crowd work. Um, I made a conscious effort early on in my career to become good at it not become good at it, but not to be afraid of it. And I think because of that, I'm not afraid to talk to audiences. My most um, laugh-infused set was a lot of crowd work. And again, that was because there were a lot of callbacks and there were a lot of tags in there. So 
that really helped get a lot. I mean, I think more than 50% of the set was laughter, which is pretty crazy. One thing I would like to do moving forward is not only do my jokes, but jokes that you would see on Netflix. Like you talked about Mike Birbiglia. He has a very different style where he's more storytelling. So he's going to have longer premises um, and then have the jokes in there. But even within that, he has little one-liners in there that he he gets laughter throughout. Um, But I would like to know what is the average efficiency ratio for professional comedians of a certain demographic. That would be interesting to me. That's interesting that you bring that up because um, in baseball, um, there's the idea of root efficiency, essentially the path to try and get to a ball to make the play and uh, condensing your steps. And I wanted to draw a parallel of baseball between what you were talking about. Baseball, like, as I said, when I wanted to have uh, Kasha on, uh, the idea was to draw parallels between baseball and comedy. And I think in both areas, we're, we're looking for uh, efficiency. Uh, and that's something that we talked about. Another thing that comes up often on the baseball side is the old school versus the new school debate where you have your old school people who are judging on feel and observation without necessarily uh, noting down the numbers. And the new school people are very into the numbers. That's what our group uh, is very much based upon, uh, although we combine both uh, in a pretty good way uh, as well. Have you run into any resistance from old schoolers who you've talked to uh, in the in the stand-up comedy world uh, when you broach this idea to them? Not really. I think most people think it's cool um, like I said, I think most people intuitively know what jokes are going to do well. They might not know it down to the second, but they can rank their top three jokes. I will say when I did my analysis before I completed it, I was a little surprised about which jokes were in my top five. Some of them I had a pretty good idea. Um, one of them was a joke about climate change. And I personally didn't think it was that good of a joke, but it seemed to do well in terms of the numbers. And I think it was because of the subject matter. I was talking about climate change. So at the end, people would clap because they're like, yeah, take down the climate deniers or whatever. (laughs) So it was more of a celebration being like, we support your point of view rather than like, that's so funny. (laughs) But that's something you have to be careful to distinguish in the data is like, is the cheering because they liked you and your punchline or because of what it said? But um, I think most people have, they think it's cool because it's something that I think all comedians would like to know. But like I said, it's very time consuming. So yeah, I think the old school comedians, when we talk about it, I mean, we, we, it's just something we're always processing that whether we mentally just have it in our heads or we write it down on paper. That's cool that there's some receptiveness to it. All right. So a little challenge here. Can you walk us through the construction of a joke, uh, perhaps <laughs> using data to inform uh, how you go about putting it together? <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. Um, So there are several ways to approach a joke. One of them, you can actually consciously sit down and write it and say, hey, I want to write a joke about NASA. Those are a little harder, I would say. When I want to specifically write a joke about a certain topic, I probably can't write it in like 30 minutes or even a few hours. That's something that will take me days or weeks where it's just kind of percolating in the back of my mind. And then maybe one day in the shower, just like walking down this room, like, oh, that's a great punchline for that. 
Another way for me to do jokes, and Twitter is actually good for chopping down your words, obviously, because there's a character limit, but just my everyday observations and then writing that down. The data, because of the efficiency ratio, I do think about, okay, what's the least amount of words that I can say this and what's the least amount of words I can use for the punchline to get the most laughs. Um, I do think about potential tags with that. I would just say that the data has heightened my awareness for certain tools that comedians all use. And that's important because, you know, (laughs) you can get away from it a lot. You keep writing and then you find things that work. And the problem is audiences can laugh at anything. Like an audience, sometimes you walk into a mic and an audience will laugh at the dumbest joke by this person who's going on stage for the first time. And I know that, hey, that's not going to work next week. That's not going to work in five years. You're never going to see that joke on a comedy special. So that's why it's important to stick to the basis of what makes a good joke. Um, A clean, uh, very tight, a tight setup, tight punchline, and a big laugh, being more creative about which ways you're going to take it. Um, So it's good to have a, a reminder of that foundation. I was thinking about, as you were talking, and again, just to, again, draw parallels for our audience, the field, the defensive player who goes back to make a catch and takes like a zigzagish kind of route, and they get to the ball and they make the one play, and as you said, you know that that's not going to work nine times out of ten, that you have to go back (laughs) to a different approach. Um, So again, I I think it's interesting the way that, and again, we we took a a stand-up comedian here, we could take any number of professions, and I think equate them to baseball. Do you have any suggestions to people who are doing studies of their work that aren't stand-up comedy that take principles from what you're doing with uh, stand-up comedy? Well, so I do have a background in science. Um, I did some research in chemistry. So I think from approaching a point of view, I think your approach needs to be consistent. Um, You need to have we, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what is the best way to see how my jokes are doing. The sufficiency ratio is something that we came up with that we thought we could kind of normalize over a lot of performances. And yeah, like I said, it's not necessarily going to tell you which joke is the funniest. I mean, it might, um, but it's more of each one is kind of independent of, it, of itself. So I think just we had to spend a lot of time (laughs) figuring out the different approaches of how to do something. Um, So I would say if you're trying to do, if you're trying to use data in your profession, make sure you get the data, clean the data, take out your outliers. I mean, these are all things that I would do in my lab when I was doing research. I would also say that I, for something subjective like comedy, I did have another person helping me with this. So (laughs) we did have kind of um, friendly arguments where I was like, hey, no, that's not part of my punchline. Like that was part of uh, the premise still. Or if, or no, didn't you hear that laughter was still going? So it was also me personally trying to like extend my laughter in my jokes, whereas he was like, no, 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 as a third party person, um, this is where I think that it stops. 
or I'll be like, no, no, that wasn't supposed to be the punchline. He's like, are you sure? Because that sounds like you wanted it to be the punchline. Um, so I think also having a third party objective person to help weigh in and do some of the analysis. All right. So shifting gears slightly, but, but kind of going off of that, another area of your expertise, I think is what we would call information simplification. Um, we deal with that daily here as well, trying to explain our baseball and football stats to people. What principles do you employ in, um, in, in information simplification, uh, both, I guess, daily life, work life through humor? That's a great question. Um, so as we mentioned, I do work as a science writer. So I have to, I work in the earth science department. So I write a lot about climate change, aerosols, very complicated things that um, take a lot of understanding in order to be able to explain it well. And what I've noticed the differences or the similarities either between my science writing and my stand-up comedy is the premise is very similar to a headline that I might have to write. So you have to get everything you need within those whatever amount of words. Um, usually like a headline, you know, you can't have it more than 10 words or so. So if we can do that for my premise, then it can be snappy, it can be catchy, it can be short enough, it can be clear enough that I can attract the listener in. Now, one issue with science jokes versus non-science jokes is science obviously takes more time to explain. So I actually did an analysis also about the premise time for my science jokes versus my non-science jokes. And my science jokes did take longer to say because there's just more things you have to communicate. And I mean, a lot of comedians have said there's Chris Rock. Uh, I'll say Chris Rock because he's famous and people know him. He said... <laughs> The most important part of your joke is not the punchline, it's the premise. Because if people don't understand what you're talking about, they're not going to understand anything that follows. So this information shortening here, or simplification, uh, it's actually very valuable that I have this background in communications to help me figure out, okay, what's the best way that I can say this? Um, at that same note, in science journalism, to explain difficult concepts, you also have to do a lot of metaphors and analogies and comparisons that if you have this really complicated thing, then what is a better analogy to say that? And that is very important in stand-up comedy. I mean, you'll see it whenever you listen to people, but they'll always kind of take it from, they'll say their premise, their situation, then they'll kind of take it to a what-if situation. And that's exactly what they're doing there. They do it in a little more exaggeration. So it's funnier, but the idea is the same. All right. Two last questions for uh, Kasha Patel. I want to cl uh, close the, the basic questions with the advice that you gave at the end of your TED talk uh, and explain how it applied to you uh, with regards to choosing the career path that you did. Yeah. So at the end of my TEDx talk, I said that um, I wouldn't have been able to find science comedy if I didn't combine my two passions of science communication and comedy. And, you know, I think that's really important for me because I think both of them make me stronger. If I was just a comedian, you know, a lot of people are do a lot of people are successful comedians with uh, just what their natural hook is. Um, to me, there are a lot of Indian comedians out there. There are a lot of female comedians out there. There aren't a lot of science comedians out there. There definitely aren't a lot of science comedians who are female and Indian. So the combination of all those things make it really special. On the other side of things, 
there are a lot of people who work at NASA, <laughs> but there aren't a lot of people who work at NASA who also do stand-up comedy and then taking that a step further doing science comedy. So I feel like I, I love Shark Tank. And when I would watch Shark Tank, when you listen to those proposals and you listen to whatever they made, I feel like the most interesting and some of the most successful ideas were happenstance. They came from these people who were spending their entire lives in like babysitting or childcare. And then they uh, were cooking or something like that. And then two ideas kind of merged. And they got this product that ended up being very relatable for a lot of people. Sometimes, you know, it can be a little more difficult to figure out what that is. My coworker, she's a big biker. And she's like, man, that's so cool. You have science come. I don't know what mine would be. I guess like biking and writing. And I mean, that's a huge, other, I mean, you are a sports writer, you know, that's a huge sector. So yep. um, yeah, I think that just exploring that, it might not be obvious at first, but just exploring two things, you could do more, but two things are kind of a good number to see how they combine. Kasha Patel, is there anything you want to uh, give a plug to uh, before we let you go? I, you did a great job with plugging all of my stuff. Um, I do have my podcast, Science Comedy Paradox, and my YouTube channel because of the quarantine. I've been ramping up a lot of activities, so there are a lot of clips. I did an Earth Day show recently, and I'll have a couple of really fun shows coming up there. So yeah, just check me out on YouTube and all the social media. If anyone has questions, feel free to email me. I'm pretty easy to find, comedy at kashapatel.com, or just Google me. You can check out Kasha's work on Twitter at Kasha Patel. That's K-A-S-H-A-P-A-T-E-L. Also at KashaPatel.com. And as we mentioned, she just mentioned her podcast. Kasha, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. This is great. So on Kasha's podcast, Science Comedy Paradox, she does a segment at the end of her show where she regroups and uh, goes through what she learned. And we've done that kind of in the past with uh Andrew Kine on this show, but Andrew no longer works for us. So we bring in our producer, Justin Stein, uh, to get his perspective on things. And I want to just touch on, to kind of start this off, the, one of the takeaways that we got, unfortunately, this came after we, we hung up. She was talking about her uh, jokes and the jokes essentially being baseball players, like each joke is a player and uh, she's forming a starting lineup of her jokes. And if something isn't going well within that lineup, she brings out, I guess, what we would call her pinch hitters. She calls it her heavy hitters, her big bats off the bench, uh, to bring in the laughs uh, as she goes. She's adjusting to how the game goes. And I thought that that was great, uh, the way that you could uh, make the parallel from baseball comedy writing. There were so many other uh, instances of that. Justin, what was your biggest takeaway? I think my uh, my favorite part of uh, her talk uh, was where she talked about the uh, study on crowd size affecting laughter. Intuitively for me, it felt like, yeah, the, the bigger the crowd, the more people that are laughing, people continue laughing. Um, and it sounds like she's still kind of in the early stages of that. But I'd be interested to see um, if she could actually dig deep into that and get like hard numbers on it, what those numbers would look like. Cause like I said, as soon as she said it, it clicked for me in times I've been like in a movie theater, watching a comedy, the more people that are in there, the more people are laughing, you know, it, it's infectious as they say. I thought that was really interesting. Um, and, and the, the other big thing was the joke efficiency. If I'm watching a comedy, a stand up act, you don't really think about 
efficiency. It kind of just feels like they're up there talking and you know they have a point to get to. But when she was talking about how important it is to get there in as few words as possible, I thought that was really interesting. And when she said that she uh, tracked her set and like over 50% of her set was laughter, that was like kind of blew my mind a little bit. I was impressed by that. And I've thought about that when I've gone to stand-up comedy shows and like size of venue, I guess, can play a role with this where um, laughter can kind of get muffled in a a bigger place sometimes. Uh, Or if you're in a smaller facility like your typical New York comedy club um, or big city comedy club uh, where people are really packed in tight and the the laughter just kind of spreads. I remember going to a recent show and feeling like that was happening for a com- uh, for comedians where when I walked out, maybe they weren't as funny. The other thing that I wanted to bring up, and this applies to what uh, Justin does with uh, his colleagues uh, at Sports Info Solutions, she was talking about uh, the evaluation of jokes and having someone else do it with her and how there were differences of opinion and how there were things where they were tough to measure. And I think, and you can certainly speak to this, that's why I'm bringing it up, Um, the challenge of trying to evaluate something, whatever it is that you're looking at, when you get other people involved, it, it, it gets harder, uh, because, uh, and the more sample that you see, it gets harder because there's so many little things. I'm thinking about home run robberies and the discussions that you guys have about those and the debates are really, really tough. It's hard to say, uh, just how that works. Um, I, I presume that, that, you could see some of the parallels in that in in what she was talking about. Yeah, absolutely. A big part of what makes our job great are those conversations though. And and sometimes they get contentious um, depending on the personality of the people involved. Somebody sees it one way, somebody else sees it a different way. You know, overall my experience and all the time I've been here is, and I tell people this if we're interviewing candidates or whatever, my favorite part is the collaboration and, you seeing a play that's a little strange, calling somebody else over, you know, what are you seeing here? I'm seeing this, you're seeing that, what should we call it? And there'll be countless times where there'll be a game going on, um, a bunch of people in the office, and we'll call over four or five different people and say, you know, look at this play, what are you, what are, what's happening here? What are you seeing here? And we'll be able to go back and forth. Our job is filled with those pretty much every day that, that happens. Um, but like I said, very rarely does it get really contentious. Um, it's more just an interesting back and forth, you lobbying for your position, um, but ultimately coming to some kind of agreement. It's a different way to watch the game, and it's a different way to do stand-up comedy, uh, as we learned today from Kasha Patel. Justin, thank you. This wraps up today's edition of the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. For our guest, stand-up comedian Kasha Patel, and our producer, Justin Stein, thanks for tuning in, everyone. I'm Mark Simon. We'll see you down the road. Check out our newest baseball book, The Fielding Bible, Volume 5, out March 1st. This book gives a comprehensive look at our new and improved defensive run save stat. It features essays on all 30 teams, research and studies on important topics, and stats and analysis you can't find anywhere else. That's Fielding Bible, Volume 5. Available at actasports.com, that's A-C-T-A sports.com, or wherever you buy your books online. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. 
If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS. 